0: Good morning, church. Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly
1: Father, we come to You humbly, Lord. As we enter into this time, Lord, of the, the reading of Your Word, Lord. As we are looking and trying to understand the mysteries of the divine, Lord. Lord, the incarnation of our Savior, Lord. And the mysteries, Lord, of the Godhead. Lord may you strengthen our minds Lord strengthen our our resolve Lord to to understand Lord and to walk and understand these things by by faith Lord and by your spirit may we not rely on the natural mind Lord and the natural laws of the world Lord to try to understand a a holy holy God Lord, I said that you would bless our time together, Lord. I pray for the, the work of your Holy Spirit in this place this morning, Lord, that your people, as always, Lord, are edified, Lord, that you, Lord, above all, are glorified, Lord, and that Christ Jesus, in the revelation thereof, Lord, is exalted. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, <clears throat> if you will turn to me, turn to me, listen to me. Turn with me, I should say. Uh, to Colossians again. Of course, we continue on in our studies of Colossians. Uh, We're going to be focusing in verse 18 and spilling a bit into 19. But first, we want to read again our our source scriptures here, beginning with verse 17 through uh, 23 of Colossians 1. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death, in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. If indeed you continue in the faith firmly established and steadfast and not moved away from the hope of the gospel that you have heard, which was proclaimed in all creation under heaven, of which I, Paul, was made a minister. As I've already said our focus today is largely on 18 and we'll spill into 19. He is the beginning. The firstborn from the dead, and so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him. However, to do this well, all right, that was the scripture. However, to do this well, we need to broaden our understanding of the nature of Christ. There should be no mystery. For us to understand, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, is directly referring to the resurrection. Hence, firstborn from the dead, and as Baptists, we know that the very act of baptism is to represent being raised from the dead or from death, being raised with Christ who came first. And from our previous looks at Colossians, uh, uh, Colossians one fifteen, we know the firstborn here is to state his position above and uh, above and over. All that are risen. And of course, the risen here is, in direct sense, are the saints or the church, right? Which further qualifies a statement from the first half of 18 that we went over last week. He is the head of the church, the body. So, we saw this last week that um, a church with Christ as its head loves God. And as 1 John 5, 3 states, go there with me. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commands, and His commandments are not burdensome. And we spoke about this last week quite a bit, and of course the love of God is to keep His His commands, rather. But we also said that the second half here is not only the, the fact of trying to keep His commands, there is a qualifier to that, and that is that His commands are not burdensome, which means those who truly follow after and love God understand and love His laws and love His commands, that they find pleasure in it. Of course, it is part of sanctification. It's not something that necessarily happens overnight. It's something that we grow into as we begin to to, to learn and to be transformed and changed through our walk with Christ. And for us to fully understand this, And also understand some of the next scriptures that we need to get into over the next week or so, which is verses 19, 20, and 22. I'm going to read those real quickly. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all fullness to dwell in Him. Also, verse 20 says, having made peace through the blood of His cross. And yet, verse 22 says, yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through death. Now we've spent our time, you know, to make much of the revelation of Christ as divine, as part of the Trinity, equal and co-eternal with God the Father and the Holy Spirit. And as stated before, it's critical to understand the Scriptures as it is a has, to understand this in, in this way, because it is has a direct impact on how we read the Word of God and how we understand Scripture and how we build our theology and how we see the common threads between the Old and New Testament. It's not a either or, but a this and that together. You understand? And it may seem that we have spent so much time doing so that one might think that is to overshadow the incarnation of Christ, the God-made man or the humanity of Christ. And may that never be so. So the point to this, and the reason I have done and worked and labored to establish these things, is, is to dismiss any sort of idea or concept of low Christology. Now, I made mention of this early on uh, with the understanding we would be talking about it in more detail. In retrospect, in my haste to move on, I did not represent that term properly. I did not state it correctly. And yes, low Christology is to look at the humanity of Christ, but taken to its fullest extent would conclude that Jesus was only that, human. Now, and clearly, that heresy has never been the intent of this teaching, so again, the intention is to lean into the high Christology that is to understand the divine of Christ, okay, but also to understand his humanity together and it is to well state and establish the deity of Christ is not to overshadow his his humanity but rather to make it even more glorious because we cannot really understand the how glorious Christ is as in his humanity if we do not fully understand His divinity. And of course, we speak of Jesus' humanity, we're speaking of the incarnation of the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity, as being made flesh. So, the other week, we spoke of the Trinity itself, and as one of the mysteries of the revelation of God that is unique to Christianity. And is a topic of difficulty for anyone outside the faith to comprehend. And, and to be fair, it's difficult for many people within the faith to comprehend. And even for those who do, it is largely left to not know the how or the why, but to only know by faith that it is simply so. Right? <coughs> Likewise, what is even harder for a non-believer to grasp is a proper understanding. Is a proper understanding of God taking on himself, taking on himself the nature of man. It seems absurd. It is absolutely the definition of absurdity. Now, for me to kind of explain what I mean by this, let me let me let's consider Christianity. And I'm kind of taking this from a secular point of view at the moment. And I can do that because I am talking about secular things. You understand? Let's consider Christianity along with the other two Abrahamic religions. Okay, There are two others, and that's Judaism and Islam. And from a secular position, all three, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, are considered monotheistic, means simply worshiping one God. And that all three are, of course, rooted back to Abraham, which is why it's called Abrahamic religions. Again, this is a, a... a secular view or a secular way of defining these things, and that 's because it is at the point of Abraham is where the the uh, theology of, of Ishmael carries us off or carries them off into the theologies of Islam. that is where the Islamic faith comes from, and of course it 's heretical from the very core there is nothing there is nothing uh, uh, redeemable. There's nothing good concerning the, the the teachings of Islam. Judaism, on the other hand, people struggle with that a little bit and understanding it, and how that fell into uh, heresy because they say, "Well, Jesus Himself, you know, was a Jew and practiced." And when I say Judaism, I'm even talking about biblical Judaism, by the way, not not uh, man-made or man-added to Judaism. We could say something about Christianity about biblical Christianity versus American Christianity or or, or man-made versions of Christianity. So what I would say to that is is <laughs> that to practice Judaism outside of the revelation of Christ as the Son of God is heresy. You understand that? You understand the distinction there? That once the Christ has been revealed to man to continue practicing Judaism, you can practice Judaism, that's what we call Messianic Jews, as long as it is done with the revelation and understanding all that you do is centered around and about Christ. But to do that apart from a revelation of Christ is heresy, and it's heretical. And there is nothing good left in it. So, so theologically speaking, uh, the primary hangout with a person of a Jewish or Islamic faith, or these type of system, is... And and the major stumbling block they would have with Christianity is that they would refuse to think or believe that a truly holy, righteous, and glorious, immeasurable, uncomprehendable, mighty, powerful, perfect, creator of all, sustainer of all, one with no beginning or end, they cannot even approach the idea that God could ever lower himself and defile himself with even the thought of being flesh and blood human. That is where their hang-up, that is where their stumbling block is. That's why it's important that we understand what we believe and why we believe it so that we encounter these kind of folks or we hear their apologetics, their arguments against these things. That's how we can understand and know how to stand against it and how to argue it and how to see it in Scripture as right and true. But there's two issues here. First of all is the idea that being human itself makes one imperfect or sinful. And that's where we get the phrase like, well, I'm only human. I'm only human, so therefore I'm imperfect. Which implies that because I am part of creation, that I am a created thing, I am by definition imperfect or sinful. And that's not true. That's not true. Being human as such does not make you imperfect. Being a fallen nature in rebellion to God does. Sin is rebellion to God. That is what makes you imperfect. That is what makes you sinful. You understand? And also assumes that even God, the creator, cannot create a perfect human nature. That is beyond God's ability that that what he creates, whatever he desires, and whatever he desires will be. So if God creates a nature with the intent of it being perfect, it will be perfect. You understand that? So in Genesis, we see God creating the world. And as He would create this, and He would create that, and He would create the the creatures, and He would create man, and what did He say each time He would make an an additional creation? It is good. Thank you, brother.
0: It was good. It was good and what? Perfect.
1: It wasn't until the sin of man defiled it all that it became not good and imperfect. (laughs) Or uh, imperfect.
0: Now, to the secular mind,
1: to the secular mind, we're talking about uh, you know someone who is who who is trained in the sciences in this Caesar-led governing system, right? So, the secular mind, the absurdity is a little bit different. Just as we spoke about the the cosmos and trying to understand, and if you remember a few weeks back, I talked about. The, the, the universe and the grandeur of it and trying to get it to, to be able to understand how immense and wonderful it is, just give us a greater understanding of God's infiniteness, if you will. So trying to understand not only the infinite nature of God, we see the seemingly infinite creation of the universe. From what we can observe today with current technology, there are easily, easily billions of galaxies, hardly any two alike and each with billions and billions of stars. Possibly at least trillions and trillions of
0: planets in each one.
1: So to put that into context of the incarnation, they have to consider the creator of such an immense vastness could then come down to this small place we call Earth being nothing more than a speck of dust in the grandeur of the universe and place himself in the midst of his own creation as flesh and blood. So if they're even to consider God as, as a possibility, to then also to consider such a creator and such a being to then make himself such an insignificant speck of dust on an otherwise insignificant speck of a planet. In an undescript part of the universe, in an un- otherwise unremarkable galaxy among billions of other galaxies.
0: For them, it is absurdity
1: on the very face of it. So, the idea of how could big a big God put himself into imperfection, but again, that is implying that by being created, you are imperfect or not good, but also a weak. Also, insignificant creation, forgetting that the creation is made by the very hands of that big and perfect God. He is not just the creator of the big, he's the creator of the small. He's not just the god of the big, he's the god of the small, right down to the nth little particle. as I mentioned earlier you know uh, the other week about you know quantum mechanics and how they discover all these other little particles and things that do really weird stuff that defy all physics and logic. He's the god of that as well. Now, I would venture to say that the average Americanized Christian is the opposite, actually. And we have been made so well acquainted with the idea of Jesus as God and as man that we have failed to see how significant and how grand the idea really is. And how glorious and wondrous and, dare I say, how absurd it is. course, the absurdity is to the natural mind and why we continue to this day to deal with, with heretical teachings. Now, I'm going to use an illustration here um, to kind of move us on into the next point and, and to kind of expound on this idea of, of, of the modern day church kind of losing sight of this understanding.
0: Okay? Now, Last week, we had our
1: uh, one of our weekly Sabbath dinners. And I noticed Darby. Where's Darby? He's, he's here somewhere. There you are. Yeah, I want to speak about you this morning. Hey! She was across the table in front of me, and behind me was Aylan. Yep, talking about you too. And they got into an epic game of stare. They were staring at each other. I mean, they were... It was, it, was, it was quite the thing to see. It really was. I mean, it was all like Donkey Kong. They, they, were, they were locked in with one another. And I happened to be almost directly in their line sight, in, in their in their eyesight line of, line of sight. And as I'm sitting there I, I, and I see this going on and I see Darby there staring down Aylin. And I began to kind of creak into her line of sight. And I was staring her, her back. And I kept trying to get in between the two. And you know what? She never saw me. Never saw me. Not one bit, I could not distract her or whatever. I mean, of course, I didn't make any loud noises or big movements, but I just kept moving in and moving in. I said, surely, surely I wait for her eyes to dart at me and see me. And she didn't. She was that laser focused. It was impressive, Darby, I have to say. I have to say it was impressive. She was completely oblivious. And in the American church, or, or the modern church, we would even say, there is a, such a focus on the me-centric gospel, and part of that is to focus on the humanity of Christ to the point His divinity is ignored. I mean, yeah, sure, it's recognized theology, theologically. I mean, if, if they were asked for a statement, they would state, yes, Jesus is God, that He is divine, and all these sort of things. But in their practice and how they communicate and how they relate the gospel to people, it's not. It's not. It gets lost. Because they are so focused on that manger. They're so focused on that manger. And of course, that manger is, (laughs) as we'll get into the Christmas season, is, is pivotal. I mean, this is not to put it down, but this is to say that you you look at that and you see how, how wonderful it is, but you can even see even more how wonderful it is if you can see the backdrop, if you can see the backdrop of a glorious and wondrous, infinite God who placed it there
0: intentionally with the very
1: power of His Word. That it was no mistake, it was no trial and error, it was no sort of, of act of, of being desperate. It was deliberate from the very foundation of the earth. And when you can see that as the backdrop, then it makes it even that much more wondrous and glorious. So if we're not trying to overshadow. We're not trying to state one over the other. We're trying to get you to understand both simultaneously. And that one without the other doesn't have nearly, nearly the beauty and understanding and is a disservice to the gospel itself. So let me be blunt. What we often see in a modern church, and we say this over and over and over, so I'm going to keep saying it over and over and over in different ways until maybe it clicks somewhere. I'm not just talking about here. I just mean outside of uh, wherever. We often see in the modern church is a searching of ways to make the revelation and truth of Christ more approachable and presentable to the masses, to make the gospel itself something that the common natural man can approve of and accept. That's why we try to dumb things down. That's why we try to use illustrations sometimes. That's why we try to really double down on understanding the humanity of Christ and not so much the divinity of Christ or the fact that we try to stay away from topics concerning sin and repentance. So they're trying to make the gospel itself something that that the common, natural-minded man will approve of and accept. And they forget that the very reality of the gospel and the work of the cross is to make sinful man acceptable and presentable to a holy God. That is the purpose of the gospel is, is, is is to make corrupt and sinful man presentable to a holy God. So you see when we work to change the narrative of the gospel or to repackage it or to soften it so that men will find it pleasing and acceptable we have flipped it on its very head. We have flipped it on its very head. We have made it we have made it powerless. So if you refuse to tell men of their own sin if 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 that they have brought offense to a holy god that they need to repent and understand the work of the cross as a ransom paid to purchase you That without him you are dead in your own sins. You are not enough, and you require the work of the Savior. So if we try to lure them and entice them into the kingdom without this fundamental understanding of the gospel, then we really have no gospel at all. The cross is meaningless, and we are left with a weak, powerless, and broken church. I mean, it might be big and have a lot of people in it, and it may seem like a lot of fun but it will have no power and will not and cannot stand in a day of persecution. When the weight of the world really begins to push against it, it will fall and crumble. It will be shaken down. It will burn. And we know that things that are truly established by God, guess what? Cannot be shaken, will not be burned. It will stand. Again, referring to some of our cultural things, we see one example of this is that I see more and more these days. And, and of course, I, you know, guys know I travel a bit and that sort of thing, so I see this on billboards and everything. In fact, I remember uh, while well, I was in Vegas uh, last or earlier this year, uh, in from my hotel room, which overlooked the the uh, uh, what do they call it, the Strip there, there was a huge electronic billboard, and and I kept seeing these ads for this. On there, but any of you have seen the "He Gets Us" campaigns, he gets us commercials or billboards or anything like that? No, okay. I guess that's one of the privileges of traveling and things. I don't know. Um, but one example of this, of course, is uh, see more of these is "He Gets Us" uh, campaigns, and I see it all over the place now. But basically, focus on his humanity is the narrative that Jesus gets and understands you and your struggles because he too is human and had to suffer the same struggles that you did, right? And so that uh, you know this whole idea of well I'm only human, well he gets you because he was human too, or he's human as well, so he gets and understands your struggles, and he imperfect he accepts your imperfections. Just as they are. In other words, you're saying. And the recent one that I saw actually just this very week was uh, one that and it showed a, a young lady pregnant, and it says, Jesus was also born to a teen mom. He gets you. And I get it. It sounds heartfelt, warm, and touching. It sounds, you know, so inviting. It tells the teen mom, heck, you're practically like Mary. Now to be clear, uh, there is no issue biblically otherwise with such a pregnancy, and I'm, I'm not, I'm not, we're not focused on the fact that we're talking about a pregnancy. What we're talking about is the nonsense or the idea that sexual relations outside of a godly marriage. That's really what the issue is here, right? And that's what we're, that's what this is even talking about. That's what it's implying is it's talking about a young person who is pregnant outside of marriage. And it says, but it's okay. Jesus was born to a teen
0: mom too. He gets you.
1: Be more to the point, the thought process behind these sort of narratives is the idea that God had to become a human in order to understand and to be able to relate to people. Or the idea that because He took on human body and human nature, that He is now able to understand and to get you. Again, it is a me-centered, it is me-centered to think that God came down so that He could learn about me and that He could relate to me. That is a a man-centered idea, that God came down to become human, and because He became human, He can now understand me. And this is nonsense when we consider the infinite wisdom and knowledge of God. There is nothing He does not know. There is nothing He does not understand. The scripture tells us that God knows the heart of man and tests it. Why do we think the creator must become the creation to understand what he has created? He's the creator. Why does he need to become a creation to understand the creation? No. No. If I make a pot, must I become a pot to understand what it is like to be a pot? Do I not understand every bump and every curve molded into that pot by my own hands? Do I not understand the spout that I put on how it will pour? Do I not understand the handle that I created for how it will hold and fill in my hand? Do I understand the base that I make for it so that it will sit stable on a table and not tip and fall over a teeter? I know and understand that pot because I made the pot per my standards. Scripture tells us that God knows the heart of man and tests it. Why do we think the Creator must become the creation to understand what He has created? I've already said that, didn't I?
0: Um, I must have really got ahead of myself or I had my notes in here du- duplicated. In any case... So again when we
1: focus on these sort of things wrongly we fail to see the miracle greater than the fact that a virgin became pregnant that's the easy part really when we consider god the fact that a virgin became pregnant we're talking about the god who can breathe life and speak things into existence so for a virgin to become pregnant should be the easy part for us to think of. The truly fascinating and mind-being, fact, is God Himself, the I Am, the Alpha, the Omega, the Jehovah, Yahweh, has become flesh and has done so to reveal His kingdom to Himself, excuse me, to reveal His kingdom and Himself to us, to give us the revelation of the Son of the Trinity. And it says in verse 21 in Colossians 1, to reconcile you in His fleshly body, through death, in order to present you before Him boldly and blameless and beyond reproach. It is to free you from sin so that you may sin no more, not to qualify you in your sin.
0: Let's go to John 1, verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among
1: us, and we saw His glory, the glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And again in Philippians 2, 5-11. through 11. Have this attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus who, although he, ex- he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant, and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death and even death on the cross. For this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus... so. At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the of God the Father. So again, as I said before, we should not consider the virgin birth, while it was a miracle, of course, we should not consider it the difficult thing. Which you consider that God, the Almighty, emptied Himself, taking the form of a bondservant in the likeness of men. Furthermore, He humbled Himself and became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. As you may recall, in the past, in the past weeks, we looked at um, Colossians two verses eight through nine. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the traditions of man, according to the elementary principles of the world, rather than according to Christ. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. We're gonna to need to we're gonna hammer on that here very soon. As noted before, we are warned to not only be held to not be held captive by misguided arguments that are based on elementary. Principles of the world—that is to say, common and natural understandings of things. Right. Uh, this is where believers struggle to consider God made man. Not only do the pagans want to imply something grotesque has taken place, others cannot consider that Jesus could be a hundred percent man, flesh and blood. Apart from the power of the Holy Spirit, his flesh was weak, and by flesh is weak, I'm referring to in a physical sense. Right. So if you were to pierce him he would bleed. Again, this is trying to understand more completely that his humanity was as real as mine and yours. So if you pierce him, he would bleed. He was tired and hungry, cold and hot. He found joy and sorrow and experience and in friendships. And we know he was tempted in every way that we have been tempted. And he felt the pressure of those temptations. He, had to deal with those temptations, just as you and I have to deal with them. And he felt the pressure of the temptations by faith and knowledge he prevailed. And though he was flesh and tempted like you and I, we also know that he did not and could not sin. I'll say that again. Not only did he did
0: not, he could not sin.
1: Now, so if he was flesh, truly human, then we might also understand the same at the same time we must also understand at the same time he was also god the difficulty to understand the trinity is indeed a great hurdle right we, we we've gone over this before we've stated this before but what might be even more so what's even considered a greater thing to try to understand is that jesus walked this earth with two natures a human nature and a divine nature fully god and fully human coexisting,
0: or not even coexisting, but melded together,
1: if you will. It's truly a difficult thing. We cannot consider Jesus as God walking around wearing a man suit. So sometimes we try to, again, make the natural mind. And what I'm telling you in uh, chapter 2, verses 8 and 9 is, do not dare try to understand this. By natural things, by natural means, or by mat- natural understandings, because we do, we end up with things like you know God walking around. There, there, there's God on the inside. And he's walking around with a man suit on the outside. So he's man on the outside, but if you cut him open, oh, oh, there's the God core. There's the God center inside there, right? That 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 there are somehow two portions of him. One simply cloaking or covering the other. No. No, or that we cannot consider him as man simply empowered or gifted by God. He is not simply a man walking around endowed with some sort of uh, godly power or godly uh, presence. If we are to consider either one of these as being true, then the reality is we are still dead in our sin. That is not the reality or the understanding of the gospel of Christ. The Scriptures leads us to know that our Lord Jesus Christ is full and completely deity of the second person of the Trinity, complete in this nature and deity, while at the same time complete with a perfect human nature with flesh and blood body. Like the Trinity, there is nothing in the created realm that is like Him. There is no other comparison. There is nothing else we can really relate to or show or try to bring There is nothing that we can rightly point to or use that would not end up taking us to some sort of theoretical understanding. Note that this human nature is, not, of course, not like ours. His is perfect. Ours is fallen and corrupt.
0: As it says that
1: our nature, of course, is one of Adam, the first Adam. And Jesus is the second Adam, right? It says in Romans. He is the second Adam, and he is the one that came with the perfect, undefiled, uncorrupt human nature
0: So, let's carry this on a little bit further.
1: The thing that that people might consider right again with the natural mind is that if Jesus truly had a human nature and could and did experience temptation just as we would then it might be concluded that there is a possibility that he could have chosen sin. And this is really taking the idea of free will to its fullest extent, right? We're trying to say, well, if he was truly human, then there had to be free will, and therefore he could have exercised said free will and simply decided to not choose to obey the Father. That he could have chosen his humanity to not obey the Father and 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 the reality is, this is an extension or double down the idea of free will. But if we think this through, and let's think this through for a moment. If we understand the nature of the Trinity, is, is, is not just some sort of bit of knowledge. It's not just some sort of knowledge that exists in the overwhelming universe, but that the nature of the Trinity is foundation to the very existence of the universe. Stay with me, church. The nature of the Trinity is foundational to the existence of the universe that without the Trinity, the Godhead, the fabric of the universe itself, simply unravels. Now, as you recall in Colossians 1.17, we said that in Him all things hold together, right? And we've read other scriptures that say the same thing. By the power of His Word, all things hold together. In Christ, all things hold together. And in that context, I referenced, of course, governmental, earthly, and heavenly institutions, right? I, I was, we, were, we were talking about and in that world, and in that realm, and in that context. And in that context, that fits. But now as we begin to look into this understanding, understanding of the Trinity, understanding of, of Christ and His human nature, we must stretch our understanding a bit further to understand what it means that in Christ all things hold together. And by the power and by His Word, that the cosmos holds together. By definition, God cannot sin or He is no longer God. Right? And also to consider that Jesus could have chosen differently would mean that God is not God and is not sovereign. I'm going to use an illustration from Doug Wilson. He made this illustration to kind of bring home the point. And he asked the question, could Jesus' bones have been broken? Could they have been broken? And the sense, yes. Why? Well, they're human, right? They're like ours. If you were to drop an anvil on him, it would break. Right? His arm would break. But then we also ask the question, could his bones be broken? And the answer is no, they could not. Why? Because God's word stated from the very beginning foundation of the earth that they would not be broken. And by the very decree of his providence and of his sovereignty, it was not possible for them to be broken. It could not be. Because for them to be broken, then God is now a liar. And he is not God. So by the very stating of the fact and by setting this and by his sovereignty that they could not be broken, they could not be broken, even though they were bone, just like yours and ours.
0: Yours and mine, I should say. So we ask
1: the question, you know, could Jesus have sinned? It's not just a question of moral choice. We're not just putting at risk the idea of relationship between the Father and the Son. It is to consider, when we say we ask the question, could Jesus have, have, have sinned, it is to consider our foundational and fundamental understanding of the nature of God and of the Trinity. And with the and with this, or without this, I should say, the universe no longer holds together. Also to consider that it were possible means the Father and the Holy Spirit are left to fret and to not know. And this would negate God's sovereignty. This would, this would negate His infinity. This would negate, this would negate every aspect of who God is. So people start to toy around with this idea. They try to suspend these ideas and try to toy around with the idea, could He or could He not? We cannot separate these two. It is a dangerous thought process to even consider, really. So if we understand that Jesus is God, That we know and understand that he could not have sinned even though he was tempted in the same way, with the same kind of flesh that we are tempted with. It is simply not possible.
0: Because it is by the very
1: definition of God that he cannot sin. Now we also need to understand that we cannot separate the two natures. We cannot separate the two natures of Christ. You cannot walk up to the Lord and say, "I really like to talk to the human Jesus right now." God, Jesus, you go over in the corner, take a seat. I need to talk to human Jesus because you know he's the one that gets me. He's the one that understands me, right? You 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 expect too much. I need to know. I need I need to talk to the one who understands. You know what it means to be human. You know to be to be fallible and and, and these sort of things. That is nonsensical. Does it make sense? There is, there is no if or the other. He is in his entirety both simultaneously, and that's it. There is no other division. There is nothing else. To consider any other division would mean that God is, is, is in conflict with himself. It would mean God is in conflict with himself, and that too is an impossibility. Otherwise, he is no longer God. So, (laughs) again, this comes, or, or again, I'm going to bring this back to the idea of free will. And if there's anyone who still wants to consider this, or because of Christ's humanity, imply free will as opposed to God's complete and total sovereignty then he has to understand that when you do that, you're not simply risking again your salvation. We're not saying that if Jesus had chose to not serve or G- Jesus had chose to not obey and not go to the cross, if he had chose to sin or if he chose any of these things because there's some sort of idea of free will in him that he could have done these sort of things, we're no longer just risking your salvation. Ask people to say, well, he could have chosen not to, but let's thank God that he did because otherwise, you know, we couldn't have been saved. We'd just go to hell. No, understand that to risk this or to understand that that would be a possibility is not to risk your salvation. It is to risk creation itself. It is to risk everything. It all falls apart. It all unravels. We, this is how we must understand the absoluteness of God's sovereignty. It's not just that we can be sure we are saved, but the foundation and the fundamental creation depends on it. Let's look at Hebrews 1, 1 through 3. We'll look at some of the prophetic prophetic words in the Scriptures concerning the incarnated Christ. And, and we are going to get into some of our favorites that uh, you know, lead us into this time of the year and this time of the season. But uh, <clears throat> Hebrews 1 1 through 3 says that God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many portions and many ways, in these last days he has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through him, through whom also he made the world. And He is the radiance of His glory, the exact representation of His nature, and upholds all things by the word of His power. So I hope you now have a greater and a deeper understanding of what it means that He holds up all things by the word of His power. Let's go to Genesis 3, 14 through 15. And I'm I'm looking here because we have to understand that, again, none of this was some sort of desperate act. None of this was some sort of, of uh, you know, <laughs> every bit is purely stated and decreed from the foundation of the world and that it is within God's sovereignty. So in Genesis three fourteen through 15, and this is right after the fall of man, the Lord God said to the serpent, "'Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle.'" And more than every beast of the field, on your belly you will go, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. And other translations is that he will crush the head of the serpent. Obviously, this is a a Prophecy of the coming Christ, the coming Savior, the coming Messiah, in Isaiah seven thirteen through fourteen. Then he said, "Listen now, O house of David, it is too slight a thing for you to try the patience of men; that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, the Lord Himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child, and bear a son, and she will call his name." Emmanuel, and as we all know from the many, many Christmas cards over the years, that Emmanuel means God with us, right? And in particular, here's Isaiah 9, 2 through 7. The people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you shall break the yoke of their burden and the staff of their shoulders. The rod of their oppressor as at the battle of Median. For every boot of the booted warrior in the battle tumult, and the cloak roll- rolled in blood will be for burning, fuel for the fire. For a child will be born to us, a son. Will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness. From then on and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Now let's look a little bit here in Isaiah a little bit more closely. And I wish I was smart enough to be the ones who who could see these kind of things in Scriptures on my own, but no, it takes men much smarter than me to point them out. But we also see that in verse 6, it says, For a child is born to us, a son will be given to us. Why do you think
0: this is stated twice?
1: Why do you think this is stated twice? Because the the word here used for a child will be born is a common word for any birth, any birth of a child. If if you were to look through Scripture and and, uh, through the Old Testament and talk about a child being born, this is the word that would be used. It'd be no different. So we're talking about the physical, natural birth of a person, right? But the second half of this, as a son, will be given to us. And so what I'm suggesting here what I'm suggesting that what was being said here, what the Lord was saying through Isaiah here is that he is referring to the idea of a of a physical human child, but then also the son, as in the second person of the Trinity, will be given to us, will be brought to us in the form of this child But furthermore, even so we are speaking of a child here be born to us, a son will be given. Let's read how the how Isaiah, Isaiah 9 here continues to build on this and bring us, not only that the government will rest on his shoulders, that his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, but guess what? Mighty God. Mighty God. This could not have been easy for Isaiah to write. I wonder what he was thinking when these words were pouring out of him by the work of the Holy Spirit. Because he think that the child we be born will be called Mighty God. Well, there is only one God. He is a jealous God. There can only be one God. So I wonder what he is thinking. And then, of course, Eternal Father. Now, we get confused by this because we're talking about the Son, right? But he's talking here, says he will be called Eternal Father. It's a matter of context, right? Because the word Father here is referring to one who creates and through whom was all things created, the Son. And He is qualified Father, the Creator, the one who creates, the one who brings things into being, as eternal.
0: He is the eternal Father and
1: Prince of Peace. So again, as we go into this season, and you will see this Scripture over and over again on Christmas cards and whatnot, and see it recited and and. and and, and quoted and things like that. Don't miss these things. We're not just talking about a child. We're talking about God coming in human form, coming to His creation within His creation so that His creation may be saved, so that He may be glorified, the Father may be
0: glorified. Another one I want to point out here in Zechariah 12.10. And again, I was looking
1: at, at at prophecies. There's there's just many, many prophecies that refer to the coming Messiah and, and describing the Messiah in different ways and in different ways. But I want to look for those who were specific to referring to humanity, the, the human portion of this aspect of this. And I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and supplication, so that they will look on me with whom they have pierced. It is clear that it's God speaking here. It's God speaking through the, the through the prophet. And he said that they will look on me whom they have pierced. And the word pierced here in, in the original language is a literal running through. It is not anything sort of symbolic or or whatever. It is a literal Piercing, a literal cutting through something. So he said, they will look on me. God says, they will look on me whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him. So he's also talking about me and him, about himself within the same thought. So they will look on me with whom they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one who mourns for an only son, and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. Don't miss that connection either. It's Christ as the firstborn above all.
0: And so as I bring this to a close this morning,
1: and again, this this is to establish ourselves so that we can even begin to fully, I mean, it it, it gives us a greater understanding, I think, of all the scriptures before this, but it's going to give us even greater appreciation and greater texture and greater understanding of the scriptures that we're going to go into here very shortly. So our focus, again, has been actually on verse 18 of
0: Colossians 1. But I felt the need
1: to take the time to establish this understanding of Christ as God, as we have done, but then also now Christ as man. But to be sure that we have a full and complete understanding, it is not either or. It is all one and one. He is both simultaneously, and we cannot separate the two natures. And we also, quite frankly, can understand it, really comprehend it. We really can't. It is by faith that we know it and understand it because it is the word that tells us such. Right? I'm going to read Colossians again 2, 19 through 15, to reinforce the things that we have spoken up to this point, all the things that we have talked about this morning. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. So let's make no mistake what that means. And in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule. And authority and in him you were also circumcised and with a circumcision made without hands and the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your transgressions and uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having counseled out their certificate of debt consisting of
0: decrees against us,
1: which was hostile to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. When he had disarmed the rulers and the thars, he made a public display of them. Having triumphed over them
0: through Him. And finally,
1: again, we will our source scriptures. We will read again Colossians one fifteen through twenty. He is the invi- He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. And I would like to take this bit here and again hearken it back to Isaiah 9 as the Eternal Father, the Creator, the Doer of all. He is before all things and in Him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body of the church and He is beginning and the end, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything, for it was the Father's good pleasure for all his fullness to dwell in him, and through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven.
0: Let's pray. Dear Gracious Heavenly Father, We praise you and we thank you, Lord, for the power, Lord, and the clarity of your word, dear Lord.
1: Lord, we thank you for your presence, Lord. We thank you for the work of your Spirit. We thank you, Father, for the work of your cross. We thank you, Lord, that we can rely, Lord, that we can lean and have faith on you, who are the faithful, Lord, that we can have our faith and understanding in the absoluteness of your sovereignty, Lord. It is, Lord, the revelation of which that gives us the peace that surpasses all understanding, Father. As we lay all these things at your feet, dear Lord,
0: we praise you, Lord. We worship you. We call your name high and mighty above all, Lord. And Lord, as we continue into our week, Father, and as we return to our families, dear Father, and as we return to our work and to our places, Lord, that you have put us in, Father. May we be bold to share the true gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as always, Father, we pray We pray, Lord, that your people have been edified, Lord, that you are glorified, Father, and that Christ is exalted. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.